You're listening to the Player Layer Podcast. I'm your host, Ivan Alexiev, and today I'm super happy to have on Eric Royce, uh, who's the designer for Spirit Island, a really, really amazing um, cooperative game, which I recommend you check out uh, for sure if you have the chance. With Eric, we talk about everything game design, basically. He's uh, got a ton of experience making games. Uh, by his words, his, he's made hundreds of games. And Spirit Island being his first published game, but you can see uh, like the experience he has, and you can see you, you'll be able to hear uh, what a great process he takes his games through, and his outlook, which I think is really good and can be really helpful to any game designer or game enthusiast, even to see the like behind the scenes. Um, so yeah, I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening, and yeah, enjoy. <laughs> Royce today, uh, designer of Spirit Island, and just amazing, amazing game designer. Uh, how are you doing, Eric? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for for coming on. And first of all, like to, to start out, I want to ask you um, how you got into games in the first place, and then how you got into game design. How I got into games kind of depends on where you draw the line. Like I've always played games since I was a young child. I just never really stopped. I got involved, I mean, I mean I get, of every sorts of games. I enjoy board games, I enjoy role-playing games, I enjoy computer games, and I've sort of been doing them all since I was exposed to them. Uh, my interests have shifted over time. When I was in high school and college, I leaned more towards role-playing games. But even then, I was doing actually play-by-mail games, because this was before the internet was really much of a thing for anybody except uh, academics. And uh, I had these, you know, aspirations. I was doing game design of play-by-mail games, like at home, sitting there scrolling out all the logic because, you know, the idea is like, you know, you'd send your turn in to somebody who had a computer which ran the simulation, and then, you know, you'd get it mailed out to you. There were loads of fun back in the day. You can still play some of them via the web, which is much faster. <laughs> um, the So I was doing those and, you know, designing sort of homebrew RPG stuff. And uh, continuing onwards, board games... Again, I never really stopped, but I got involved in hobby board games sort of partly through a local store, which carried them, partly through Magic the Gathering, um, and partly through, with that local store, a birthday gift that I bought for a friend, uh, which was El Grande. It came out of RPGs. There was a, uh, one of his characters in an RPG I was running, kept ending up in Spain for unspecified and mysterious reasons. And I'm like... El Grande, oh, great. And I saw, I got, we played board games together. Like, yeah, we really enjoyed Robo Rally. And so i like, great, I'll give this to him as a birthday present and we can all play it and have a laugh. And it turned out to be a really good game. So that's sort of what got me from uh, scattershot tabletop games, which are sort of just like whatever I happen to encounter to going, oh, wait, let me look deeper. Let me see what else is there. Uh, it's also sometime around then, plus or minus five years, that I decided, yeah, you know, like these games I play around with designing in my spare time, I think that these are are good enough to, you know, contend for being published. So I want to start working towards that because, you know, I'm sure that there are areas where they, you know, 
aren't quite there yet where I'm going to need to practice up and get better. But let me sort of make that a deliberate focus, like deliberately try and do that instead of just hoping to blunder into it. Mm-hmm. And what were your first attempts like, uh, like after those RPGs? Uh, I know that like uh, Forest Science, which is uh, supposed to come out this year, right? Um, yep. Was actually made before Spirit Island. Was that like your first serious attempt at uh, making a game? No way. That was like, I don't know, number 150 or something. It's, it's, I mean, again, it depends on how you count. I've been making games of, of one sort or another for ages. Uh, and in addition, there's also all the things like, uh, there's games which I would make sort of my own homebrew expansions for, like, uh, James Ernest, uh, Cheap Ass Games had a, uh, a really entertaining title, Give Me the Brain. Like, it's about zombies working fast food. Uh, and, you know, it's uh, there is some strategy. It's an empty your hand game, and there is some strategy to it. Uh, but there's also a fair amount of luck and silliness and laughter. Uh, it is very entertaining. And while I was, uh, you know, playing it with again the same friend who I who I gave El Grande to, uh, and uh, you know, he mentioned that there was no card called "Would you like fries with that?" Which in a game about fast food seemed like a, a gross gross omission. And since I I worked uh, uh, when I was younger, I worked as a waiter for a little while. Um, so I'm like, okay, all right, I feel like I'm qualified to, to do this. So I made a, a, a sort of my own expansion with all the things from working as a waiter, which I remember, which weren't in the game already. Uh, you know, there's a Steve Jackson game, Strange Synergy. I made my own sort of local expansion for that. I messed around with Robo Rally stuff. None of those are my own designs. They're all extensions of existing designs, but they were still, uh, well, A, lots of fun, which was kind of the point, and B, practicing the craft. Uh, but even outside of that, dozens or possibly you know, dozens and dozens scores, maybe hundreds of of you know. Oh, let's try this thing. No, that didn't go anywhere. Oh, let's try this thing. That didn't go anywhere. And like, where do you call? I mean, th- there have been things where I've sketched stuff out on paper and then not pursued it because it looked dubious. Uh, so you know, how many games I've designed at any given point in time? It's a time. It's a very um, it's a hard question to answer because it depends where you draw the line. Mm, yeah. Well, here's another uh, look at it. Uh, Has your style kind of changed over those hundreds of game ideas and the the way that you go into making a game? My style has definitely changed, if nothing else, with Spirit Island. Spirit Island was a deliberate stretch for me. Most of my designs prior to that were much more towards the Euro side of things, where maybe they were strongly themed, uh, especially in sort of what I call my early gaming and early design days. Uh, You know how there's a a, a whole lot of games out there where the theme is awesome and then the gameplay can't really bear the weight after, like you've played it once or twice and experienced the theme and it was great and fun, and then you're done because that's all there is to it. Uh, And so I had games which were sort of like that, but even then at the time I had this desire to make them deeper underneath. I had played enough games which had that depth. I grew up playing chess. Uh, I played Magic the Gathering in college. You know, I I had some experience with games which you could really sink your teeth into, and I always kind of wanted that. Uh, But most of my titles before Spirit Island were, they might have had a strong idea for a theme, but I'm going to say they weren't super heavy integration between theme and mechanics. Mm -hmm. And in particular, they didn't have a lot of what I'm going to call content. There's 
the rules of a game, but then for any game which has different things, like Spirit Island has different spirits or different power cards, there's things which work within the rules, but which are more data than rules themselves. They are more content. It's a new spirit. It has its own rules, true, but it is playing inside of an existing structure. And I had never before Spirit Island done anything which was that heavy on the thematics and required so much focus on the thematics. And when I set out to do it, like I was intimidated, I knew it was going to be a stretch, but I did it sort of partly as a challenge to myself, partly because Ted Vessenes, a friend, fellow game designer, and the developer of Spirit Island was really enthusiastic about this idea I'd had. Uh, and so I went forward with it and it was indeed a lot of work. It was more work. Like my title published before that, Fealty, was, it seemed like a lot of work at the time, but it was from conception to pretty much done and ready for publication, like six months. And Spirit Island was like six years. Uh, so now part of that was because I became a parent part of, you know, during that time. But, uh, you know, some of it was also just, there was just a lot of stuff to make and the systems had to be layered on top of each other in a sort of sensible way. And how did you start with Spirit Island? Was it all theme first? It was, so I say most of my games start with sort of two out of three things. Uh, if you take, uh, so one piece, which it might be, is a theme. A second piece might be a mechanical idea. And the third is a vision of some facet of the experience of play, like a moment of delight or cunning or like a player you know something which makes a player feel good or clever or the entire table like going whoa or something uh and usually game ideas for me not always but usually they happen when two of those things collide in my head in this case for spirit island it was a theme and a mechanic the theme being turning the sort of colonial trope which you frequently see in euro games on its head and the mechanic being uh, an idea for making a cooperative game which would avoid the alpha player problem by using programmed actions, uh, kind of like RoboRally. And the latter did not survive past early playtesting. Uh, it is the genesis of why you affect the board primarily with cards in Spirit Island. But all of, you know, initially there were like six or no, nine different sort of phases, number one through nine, the invaders acted on phase like three and seven. And so like your, your one and two powers were sort of your defenses. And then you had the, like, there's this whole interwoven thing, which proved to just not be very much fun uh, because you'd spend a lot of time being like, anybody have a four? No. Anybody have a five? No. Um, and the idea was that everybody would play these programmed actions and sort of program out their turn. And you'd be trying to cooperate, but you wouldn't be able to tell each other exactly what you were playing. And so you'd end up with sort of indirect accidental interactions the same way that you might in a game like Robo Rally or any other uh, uh, simultaneous action selection game. Um, and that part didn't end up working out as well, but the rest of it played really, really well and people were super enthusiastic. So I continued charging on with it. Yeah, that's actually a good uh, question that I was... I was... Uh, gonna go to, <laughs> gonna ask you is how do you keep motivated with a huge project like that? The answer now is different than the answer was then. Like now I have the advantage of people play it and they love it. And I can like go and see people enthusing about it or like getting on. There's a, there's a discord, which is run by the uh, 
uh, a couple of folks who have made a tabletop simulator mod for it, which has like like a thousand people on it. So not all active at, at any given time, of course. But like you know, there's a there's a, a theory channel and a jagged earth channel. I can pop on and see people like discussing openings, um, and that is tremendously revitalizing. Like seeing people enthuse about and enjoy the game is soul nourishing uh, and and fantastic. Um, before it was published, obviously, I didn't get that directly. Uh, once, I mean, although once it was prototyped, people were enthusiastic enough about it that that was somewhat sustaining. Like, not just Ted, other people who played would be like, you know, grabbing their friends and saying, come over, play, you know, you got, you got to check this out. And that was also good. In the very early days, it was a combination of the two things I mentioned. It was uh, sort of wanting to stretch myself, setting it as a goal for myself to do something I had not done, uh, just generate. It wasn't the systems which daunted me. Like I, I was sure I could do the systems, uh, that it would be a lot of work, but I could do it. What was daunting was like, can I come up with like a hundred unique, interesting powers? Can I come up with all of these things, you know, uh, just needing to, to, you know, what if I miss something? What if I forget something? Uh, you know, I don't include something which should be there. Um, just the scope of thematic inclusion was daunting. Yeah, That was, yeah, challenge for myself with, with, some, with some support from Ted. It was all, it was all there. <laughs> and what were you doing, like, at that time? What, uh, did you have a, another, like, full-time job, or were you doing this as a side thing, or what was the situation like? Uh, let me think timetables. This was 2012. Okay, yeah. So I, when I first started sort of focusing on game design, I was working full time. Uh, I ended up shifting to three day a week work in order to do more game design uh, for a number of years. I, I, I was at that job like seven years or so. Um, and, you know, I was fortunate in that, boat, you know, I, I went to the company I was working at. I said, look, um, I enjoy working here, but the current pace is I'm going to burn out. I can keep working here as long as I can. I'm guessing it'll probably be a year plus or minus. Um, and I'm happy to do that. But I'd also be happy to drop down to part time. And then I'd love to work here for much longer. And they, I'd already been there a year showing them like, yeah, I'm good at what I do. Uh, and they said, yeah, like, you know. You know, what would work? And we hashed out that I would work 60% time, um, which, you know, it was a tech job. So 60% of a tech salary is still totally something that I could live on because we didn't have kids then and my wife was also working. So like, you know, that was manage that was manageable. We didn't, you know, we were good about budgeting. And so like not a problem there. Um, and then at some point my wife, uh, you know, and I sat down and she's like, you know, do you want to just focus on this? Um, and I was like, I would like to do that. Can we make this work? And we figured that if I became a house husband and took over all of the household chores and the grocery shopping and all that stuff, then uh, she would get more free time because she wouldn't have to do any of that. And I would get more time net positive. Uh, and, you know, again, our finances would take a hit, but, you know, the budgeting and, and living within our means worked out. So I was able to do that for a couple of years. And that's where I was when I started work on Spirit Island. Um, by that point, we also knew that we were, uh, uh, you know, going to try and have kids, and so uh, that was, you know, on the horizon. And we knew that at that point, that you know, if that panned out, then I was going to be a stay-at-home dad, 
And so, you know, and that, you know, that by the time serious spirit Island work started, uh, my wife was, my fan was already pregnant with our first kid. So, uh, it was very much a, okay, I'm going to work on this for a while. And then I'm going to stop working on it for some time. Uh, who knows how long? Cause I really had no conception of, I knew very well that I didn't know what it was like going to be like to be a parent. So what about like your inspiration for games? Um, like you, you said you had like some real life inspiration from your waitering job. Um, but what, what usually is the, like the first spark Anything, everything. I can be walking down the street and like see something interesting and think, oh, that could make an interesting premise for a game or read an article online. Uh, I'm very interested oftentimes when I see social movements. I'm always curious as to whether those can make good games uh, because. When Spirit Island came out, there was a lot of reaction of, oh, great, you know, finally a game which is, you know, taking a different a different take on, uh, on colonialism rather than rah, rah, rah. And, I, you know, there, I had some wondering. I'm not going to call it concern because it was very much a like, well, if people like, if people like it, they do, and if they don't, then they don't. And so it goes. But I, I, I did wonder, like, how, how approachable people would find that or if they'd find it off-putting. And I think there's a hunger in the board game community, for, particularly among people who've played a lot of board games, for games which address topics which are new, address topics which are interesting, and address topics which are relevant and topical. And I'd love to see more games which handle these sorts of things. I'm surprised they haven't come out yet. I feel like there's more now than there were you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. Uh, but I don't know how much of that is proportional. I, I'm not sure that there's a greater proportion of such games. It may just be that there's so many more games now. Um, to the extent that there are, you know, that there are such games, I'm always pleased when I see them. It's fantastic. Uh, but I'd, I'd hope to see more of them, I guess, is, is what I'm saying. So I keep an eye out for those. Uh, although, you know, I, I keep a list. I have this long list of like game ideas, which is everything from just like this fragmentary mechanic, which occurred to me in the middle of the night, to complex thematic mappings of like, oh, you could do this game with this and that. And here's the like broad scale dynamics I'd want to have in play, but no actual mechanical underpinnings to en enact those. So all kinds of fragmentary concepts and other things like it, it's sort of the like, if I could clone myself 20 times, what would I work on? And it would be this file, like you know, the giant list of, of game ideas. Uh, I have way more ideas than I will ever have time to work on. Uh, and like you mentioned earlier, like, you know, my style has changed. My aesthetic has changed. I have gotten better as a game designer. Like I can look back now, even at just, you know, a few years ago at the start of Spirit Island or even Jagged Earth and go, okay, yeah, I've learned things since then. So some of my older ideas I look at, I'm like, oh, I totally revamped that. Um, but there, there's enough in there to keep me occupied for ages and it's growing faster than it's shrinking. So yeah. uh, ideas come from everywhere. Ideas aren't there. You know, ideas are, are a good idea is awesome, but it's 99% execution. Actually, that's a little deceptive. I guess it might be more the possible awesomeness of a really good idea. The ceiling is higher for a really good idea. Uh, a really good idea can reach greater heights. It has more potential, but realizing that potential is 99% work. Mm -hmm. 
So it's not that a great idea gives you a pass on making a good game. A great idea is a seed of a great game. Um, and also there's like market dynamics, like who knows what's going to be a hit? Nobody knows what's going to be a hit. Yeah, for sure. Um, a lot of games come to mind, like Wingspan or... Uh, uh, when you said that, I, I remember like, Jamie Stegmaier talking about how ideas by themselves are worthless. And it's, it's really, like you said, um, when you act on them, that they yes. that they actually become something, you know. Well, totally. how, how do you choose from all the, those ideas which ones you're gonna act on, and is it the ones that you, you see the most potential for awesomeness, or? Uh, so, for for the purposes of this question, I'll answer as if I weren't also working on Spirit Island, because working on Spirit Island stuff and expansions and sort of providing support. Uh, before a game comes out and after a game comes out, there's a certain amount of like being involved with the community to just support the game, which I want to do. Uh, and that takes up, especially for Spirit Island, a, a non-trivial amount of time. Um, just, you know, I am tremendously pleased that Spirit Island has done what it has done and is doing as well as it is. That's great. I would not trade it at all. Uh, it does, as a practical matter, mean that I have a lot less time to work on other designs. Uh, so when I get those periods of, I'm not currently working on Spirit Island, how do I choose what to work on now? It is a combination of which ideas I think have the most potential awesome and which ideas I find the most shiny, um, just in terms of raw visceral appeal to me, and which ideas I see as time limited in some way, like if there's uh like if i'm going to collaborate with another designer that is going to rise up in priority because i don't want to waste their time uh you know right now i uh there's there's a i've been you know putting my head together with one designer and friend and it's been uh that totally got shelved because of the pandemic and for science and a bunch of other stuff and jagged earth cut rolling out and i like i want to get back to it um it's high on the priority list but i just haven't had the cycles yet um, so probably those three things, there might be other things which go into it, uh, but those are the big ones. Mm. And what do you do when, like, inevitably, from my experience, at least, uh, there, there are times in game design when you get stuck and you kind of, uh, you're not sure in which direction you want to go, or if, if, if you have a game whether you want to shelf it or keep going with it or keep pushing through or what do you do? And have you had these moments maybe um, where you're uncertain of, of what the next course of action should be? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, as I'm, as I'm just working on designs and I have, I don't know, probably on the order of 10 to 20 designs sitting around in different stages of completion, which I might pick up again at some point. Uh, Oftentimes, like if I if I have a, a reasonably open schedule, then which with Spirit Island and parenting is less common these days. But if I do, then I will work on it for a while. And if I hit a point, there's sort of two different types of roadblock. There's the oh god, I don't want to do the work of physically making another iteration on this prototype, like doing the file editing and printing out and paper cutting and sleeving and just like physical assembly. And if that's the problem, then what I do is just at some point I sit down 
and just start the tinkering. And I tell myself, I can just tinker for five minutes and then I'll be done. And that draws me in. If it's like physical assembly, I'll just be like, I'll print it out and I'll just put it on my paper cutter. And then whenever I happen to be seized in the mood, and then as often as not, like just doing that gives me the momentum to start getting into it. Um, but then there's the other type of stall, which is the, where does this want to go? And is this worth pursuing? Because one of the things which I'll do is take a design and I'll be like, no, I don't, given where this is, I don't think it's worth spending time on this. And in many ways, I feel like one of the major areas I've leveled up on as a designer over the last 10 years is being able to look at a thing or, or even before it's instantiated sometimes, just look at a, a possible change I might make to a game and go, wait, no, that's going to be a dead end. I don't need to explore that. Like there's this one game I I had for a really long time. Uh, I called it Ninja Bowl because if you call it, if you call any if I tried to call it Ninja Olympics, then it could it was maybe unpublishable because you know the International Olympic Committee doesn't let anybody use that name for anything. Um, and uh, I worked on it for years, like tweaking it and finagling it, and it never quite got to where I wanted it to be. It was always sort of unsatisfying in some ways. And so I like put it on the shelf and I forgot about it for a while. And then more recently I went back and looked at it and I'm like, oh, that doesn't work because it's an all pay blind bid auction. And those dynamics are fundamentally like this, which is at odds with what I wanted the game to be. Like, and so just realizing those things, being able to recognize patterns and dynamics and avoid dead ends is an immense time saver. So it's sort of like um, in photography, like, you know, how do you take good pictures? Well, one, learn to recognize good pictures. Two, take a lot of pictures and choose the good ones. Um, there's a lot more to it than that. That's an oversimplification. But take lots of pictures is something you see pros do all the time. Uh, it's like just blend out huge numbers of pictures, and then you go, "Oh, okay, there's going to be some good ones in here." Um, especially if you know what you're doing when you're behind when you're behind the lens. Uh, learning to recognize dead ends like that through experience is sort of similar. It lets you iterate more on things which are actually likely to bear fruit. It, it saves you that effort. Uh, so I've forgotten what the question was, which got us here. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that was, that was exactly the, the yeah. question. What you do when you yeah. kind of get stuck. Yeah. So yeah, no, I have a, I have one game, um, called insane alchemy, which has been on the back burner now for 15 years, I think 14 years and people who tested it back in the day still ask me about it. And it is on my, like, I want to do this list, but a, my time is pressing elsewhere. And B, it has some fundamental problems that I've like, how to fix them has been slowly like percolating in my mind. And once every like three to four years, I'll do an iteration on it and then put it away for a while again. So yeah, it's, um, and then there's other ones which are, t uh, tabled pending research, like, uh, the grounding something in a historic theme is awesome. It does mean that you need to do more work than if you're grounding it in an imaginary theme because uh, you want to be faithful to the thing you're actually representing. And so it's like, all right, I need to do some serious library time for this. And I'm not actually sure where to start because I like I tried doing some digging and I couldn't find any books of what I was looking for. It's like I'm looking for, you know, the history of the, of the economic development of this very particular chunk of the United States in like, you know, 1780 through 1820. And I probably need to do an actual like reference librarian like consult and stuff so yeah yeah uh, so yes i table things all the time sometimes i get back to them 
Yeah. Spirit Island was that way, actually. My very first iterations got tabled for a year, year and a half. Well, I thought about some parts of it, and then I came back to it, and look where it is now. <laughs> it's Yeah, I think it's a, at a pretty good place now. Uh, Can you tell me how, uh, play test, how you do your play testing, and do you do like blind tests as well? Or what do you look for in a session of uh, playtesting the game? It varies a lot. Prototypes exist on a continuum from, I have no idea where this game is going, and I'm mostly just trying to find the major fun points and pain points and steer towards the former and away from the latter. That's sort of very early prototyping. Uh, or, I have a vision, is this viable? You know, is, the, is what's fun about I mean, There's one... Uh, uh, game concept I'm working on right now where testing has revealed, yeah, there's a game in here which is really appealing, but the part of the game which is appealing is not the part I wanted to make a game about. And so I'm like, okay, do I want to try and like start over and make a completely different game with the idea I had, or do I want to chase down the fun in this idea? Um, the Once you get later on in a prototype, like the further you get towards something which is pitchable or has been pitched and is heading for publication, the more and more you're looking to fine-tune things, it's more into development at that point. Uh, and once you get, you, you know, if a game gets signed, eventually you hit a point where playtests are no longer playtests, they're demos. Uh, where it's like, no, it's too late to, to change anything. The game is literally at the printers. Um, I'm just showing you and seeing if you like it. And that's not a there is like the, they sent the files, but it's not a, a cliff. It's a, it's, a, it's a smooth curve over time. Um, where like ma making major structural changes to a game has a higher and higher cost the further you go on because you end up effectively throwing out earlier work. And that is, it's a sunk cost, but it is like if you, if you build a habit of routinely throwing out everything you've done, you will probably make better games at a much, much slower pace. Mm -hmm. And so that's a trade-off you need to figure out in your own life. Like, where do you go with that? Um, I usually... For in-person playtests, I will watch. I get a lot of what I want to know out of watching the other playtesters, whether I'm playing or not, just like seeing a moment of hesitation. What do they need to ask for clarification on? Where do they make mistakes? What do they think is intuitive? Um, what really gets them fired up? Like That's probably 70% of what I take away from a live playtest is just pure observation. Uh, there are sometimes some really insightful things people have to say after the fact. Uh, there's one memorable playtest for Spirit Island, which happened at Origins, where a couple of uh, the testers, who also were game designers, uh, uh, gave like 40 minutes of comment and critique, which was amazingly useful. Like it was gold. It was it was awesome. Uh, and it was, it was uh, Luke, I'm blanking on Luke's last name, and Jared Tenney, uh, who decided to walk the plank and some other things. Um, and the, it was great. Uh, but sometimes a playtest, like the commentary after the fact, will end up being marginally useful. Like they'll tell me things I already knew because I watched them, or things where it's like, okay, it's good to know that's a pain point, but most of what you're spending me spending time on is telling me why it needs to be fixed in my X, and I know that X won't work because I've already tried it, which means I need to try something else. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I'm grateful for their thought processes because even if they tell me things which I know are wrong in terms of like what will work to solve it, they're not going to be the only ones who think that. Like there's meta-knowledge. 
if somebody who tests something tells me something where I go, I know that won't work, they're still also telling me, but people are going to think this. And so like there, 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 there's multiple, like knowing that that's something people are going to judge my game on is useful because it's, um, it's about the player experience of the game. And even if I can like make a mathematical flowchart proving that this thing which people think the game should do won't work, if they really think it should work and want it to be that way, that's going to color their experience of the game. And so knowing that that's the, the lived experience of what players have with it is super useful. Um, I do, I have done blind testing sometimes. Uh, I know of a variety of opinions on this. Uh, I've heard some designers who swear by it, like never don't do a game blind testing. I know others who say, uh, including, you know, designers, also a publisher who says blind testing, as it's often promoted, is nearly useless because the sorts of people who are willing to do blind tests are a bad cross-section. Like they are not a representative cross-section of the likely people who will buy your game. Um, and so like, it's not that they're useless in terms of, yes, you'll get a play test out of it, but what you're trying to use it for is going to be distorted by this because, you know, um, and uh, other opinions, I, uh, Matt Leacock at uh, Tabletop Network last year gave a great talk about doing blind tests where you aren't there, but you have a camera there and, uh, uh, you know, you're with consent, obviously, you're not like spying on them. Uh, but they set up a camera and do a blind test on camera. And because that allows you to capture all those things that I was just talking about in terms of observation. Mm -hmm. Because like, if I just get a, if I do a, uh, I did for one of my games, uh, uh, an early game called Pioneers, uh, I did the sort of very, you know, okay, all right, I'm going to reach out to friends of friends, people who don't know me personally, and they'll take the game back to their group and they'll test it and they'll like give me some data and a bunch of impressions. And it gave me some information, but not honestly as much as the work which it required. Now, that might be different if I had an easy blind testing setup. Like if I had an exchange program with some other designer who I didn't, you know, who had game groups where I could just be like, oh, here, hand it off, get it back, then it might have been worth it. But for the amount of effort it took to do that blind play testing, um, the best feedback I got on it, like it, it kind of verified, you know, what I, the answer I eventually got when I pitched this game was it's a fine game. There's nothing wrong with it, but there's nothing distinctive or engaging enough about it for us to want to publish this over a bunch of other games. Uh, you know, it was solid. It wasn't inspiring. Um, and that was almost verbatim the feedback I got from one of the testing groups. As it happened, one of the most experienced testing groups uh, in the blind feedback. Um, and that was, you know, they were, they nailed it. They were spot on. Um, the other blind test groups all said, yeah, yeah, we think this should totally be published. We would totally buy it. And, you know, in hindsight, I think that there was a certain amount of the, um, I don't know what you call it, the excitement tendency. Like people who are play testing something are almost invariably invested in it more than a play, than a player will be who just made a purchase in a store or got given the game as a gift. Um, and so they tend to carry some of that through because they're excited to, it's like, I'm excited to be part of the process. That excitement leads me to have a better experience, which is genuinely true. It's not like they're lying. They had a great time, but that may have been influenced by the fact uh, that, you know, there were externalities which you can't package in a box. Um, 
or well, most people don't package their playtesting in the box. There may be exceptions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've actually been dealing with this quite a bit because we've been doing uh, playtesting and blind blind playtests for other designers with my group. And it's yeah, like, yeah, it's it's a really interesting process, and I feel like it's something that um, like get gets you thinking in a different like because like when you when you have your own projects, it's very different doing playtesting or or like development work on on. Uh, projects that are by other people and uh, oh, yeah. I've definitely experienced a lot of those things that you mentioned which is having that vested in interest in the game uh, because you're playtesting it is, is, is something yep. that, that uh, I've definitely felt yep. um, but yeah uh, it really depends from blind test from test group to like sometimes uh, a designer would want to see the actual game and sometimes, like, there's two levels of it. There's looking at the game and looking at the people um, yes. who are playing it. Um, oh, there's also also something I didn't mention is that there's benefits to blind testing beyond benefits specifically for the design. Uh, blind testing will force you to write a rulebook and will force you to make sure that you put your all into the rulebook instead of just kind of, you know, well, I can just teach it. Um, you know, it'll force you... and. I find whenever I whenever I write a rulebook, it it pushes me to simplify things because it's like if this is hard to explain in the rulebook, would it be easier to to write a really insightful, amazingly excellent paragraph in this rulebook, or would it be easier to just change that rule to make it simpler? And the answer is usually the second thing. Yeah. Um, it also, uh, or you mentioned testing other people's designs, blind or not, I think is super valuable. Uh, you. I mean, I learn. I play games just to learn from them, and you learn things from games which are in the process of being designed, which are still sort of semi-formed in ways which I think, I don't know if it's fundamentally different, but it's definitely, at least I've learned different things from seeing games iterate as I gave testing feedback. Uh, you know, that is, you know, not so much these days with pandemic and kids, but in, in other times I've been heavily involved in testing uh, designs from other folks locally. And uh, that's always been a source of learning, too. Mm. Um, yeah. Do you set any deadlines? And at what point do you set that, that those deadlines? Like, is it when you've already signed something or you, <laughs> you kind of have to have a deadline? Or early yep. on, do you have any deadlines? Uh, sometimes. I'll set deadlines for myself sometimes. The, when things are signed, those tend to take deadline priority. It's the, okay, all right, you know, Greater Than Games is looking for the final Jagged Earth files by date X, and that means I need to have everything but these small, easy-to-tweak numbers done by previous date Y, and that means that the bulk of balance testing needs to be done by previous date Z, and so, you know, those are, it's, you know, project management, basically. Uh, it's for myself and uh, testing in general. The, for my own personal projects, I will sometimes do deadlines. They tend to be motivated by playtest opportunities. So if it's okay, I'm going to host a game day on this weekend, or oh, I'm going to go to a game day on that weekend, then it'll be okay. Let's see if I can get a prototype for this thing, a new iteration in, so I can bring it there and test. Even and then even if I don't end up testing, then I have it ready to test, and it gets it gives me the motivation to reach that closure point. Uh, conventions serve, serve as a larger version of that in days when we can go to conventions. It's like, okay, all right, I'm going to go to the convention. I'm going to have a chance to play with people I don't usually get to play with. I'm going to try and bring these 
top three things I'm working on so that I can get opinions from folks who I only see once or twice a year, uh, especially because I only make it to just just before the pandemic, and I just upped to three conventions a year, uh, and that was, was just feeling like I was getting into the swing of things, and uh, now COVID. <laughs> so, but yeah, internal, inter sort of in in my mind, deadlines are useful. Uh, sometimes I'll also try and do day to day deadlines, where it's like, okay, I'm going to try and get you know this much work on you know aspects for Jagged Earth done by the end of the week, so that I can release a new thing to the playtesters. Um, but when it's just for myself, I tend to be a little more squidgy. Like it's not worth my mental health to be like, ah, oh, great, I got all of my four designs ready for BGG con, but now I'm so burned out that I don't enjoy the con and I can't get really good testing in any way. Like that, that's no good. I do game design because I love it. And if the process of game design sucks all the joy out of designing games, then like that's that's not worth it. I never want to go there. Um, it's okay to like to dive into it briefly. Like, you know, the initial proofing for Spirit Island, the core game, that was an intensely unpleasant period uh, because there was so much stuff to go over. Um, and in such a short span of time, uh, because it was, you know, just so much text. Um, and it was late because, so we were, there was this huge pressure, like get it done now, now, now. Uh, but when it's not an external deadline like that, I try and cut myself enough slack that I don't interfere with my own enjoyment of the process. Mm -hmm. Uh, something I've, I've heard you talking about, and it's very much valid for, uh, Spirit Island is interlocking simple systems to create complexity. I mean, part of this may be my computer science background, but I feel like, on the one hand, it's easiest to understand things when you can consider them as an entity. You know, if it's like, all right, if I can say this piece of the game works this way, and I can explain it in a clear and simple fashion, that's easier for players to internalize than if there's a lot of, oh, but if it's in this context, it behaves that way, or if it's in this context, it behaves that way. There's a lot of exception cases. Um, and the, but the flip, but the flip side of that is that if all you have are things which don't interact at all, then you tend to have a very simple game. And I tend to like games which involve more thought where what's going to happen is not so obvious, uh, usually because of complexity, possibly emergent complexity or player action rather than it's not obvious because it's random chance. So to draw a concrete example, um, do you remember uh, 504, the Freedom and Freeze game, where you had uh, three different modules you could combine, uh, where you were taking, there were nine different modules and you can combine them in a whole bunch of different ways. Yeah, I know um, of the game, I haven't played it though. Okay, it's, it's a fascinating concept. I love the idea. Uh, I found, that the I had two tr two troubles with it, uh, which ended up in both cases they were things like I bought it and and got it and I got way more than my money's worth out of it from a game design perspective. Like I ended up going, all right, like as far as playing at Games Day, I was uh, you know sort of. I ended up being a little lukewarm on it. It was like, okay, these are fine, but I have other games which are going to be a little more targeted, a little bit better. Uh, but, oh, like, I I loved looking over it for the design. 
I mean, the design of chutzpah of that game is fantastic. It is, it is like, I salute Freedom and Freeze for making that. It is, it is, yeah. It is, it is, it is such an awesome concept. Uh, but one of the two areas where I felt that it had trouble was that you'd get, all right, module four, war, uh, was four warfare five. I can't remember. The warfare module as the primary module, it works in this way. Here are the rules for it. And then there would be exception cases. If this combines with the economics module as the secondary, you have to remember this rule. And sometimes there would be exceptions to the exceptions. And that to me made it much less approachable. Now, it was, I think, in many ways necessary. The module, those, those exception cases made the modules hook together in a much more interesting fashion, but it meant that the overhead of learning a module, like you couldn't just learn the rules for warfare as primary and then just apply them broadly. You had to uh, rule, uh, learn them and then each time you played, check and see if there were any exception cases. Uh, let alone just learn the rules like the, in the ideal, you'd learn the nine module rules and then be done. As it was, it was sort of, you had to learn them for primary, secondary, and tertiary. And then you had to learn exception cases in each of those cases. So like the ideal of learn nine rule sets combined in 504 ways was, to my mind, not fully realized because of that lack of modularity, that lack, that sort of uh, intrusion of, of lots of exception cases. Um, the um, the other, as a side note, the other difficulty that I felt 504 had was something which I think was unavoidable, which is that if you're playing a game with the same pieces, to some extent, it's always going to have a similar feel. Um, and it got around that some by using some of the pieces only in some of the modules, but the physical presentation of a game affects how playing that game feels. And so um, a little bit like uh, GURPS, the role-playing game. Like, you know, it's a generic universal role-playing system. It can represent any conceivable system in the world, but it's always going to feel kind of GURPS-flavored mm. just because it's always using the same mechanical underpinnings. Similarly, you know, 504 always had the same mechanical underpinnings and the same component underpinnings. And as a result, there was always a similarity of feel across the games, which, you know, it's not an intrinsic negative, but it was one fact which made it less... It meant the individual modules were less distinctive than I feel like, you know, would have been the case. Maybe 30 years from now, we can have, you know, 504 uh, uh, second edition where everybody in the world has 3D printers. And so like each module, print the unique pieces uh, or something like that. Some craziness. Um, but jumping back to, to simple modules put together, uh, the benefit of it is that you can get uh, players wrapping their head around each individual piece uh, more readily. The disadvantage is that the complexity tends to be emergent. And so like players can completely understand the rules and have no idea how the game plays. And that's less of a big deal for a co-op in some ways, but like if you end up, but some players can, can find it very frustrating and even, uh, even in a co-op and in a competitive game, like, I don't know if you've played, have you played any 18xx games? Uh, no, I haven't. That's, that's what okay. John Rive missed. <laughs> So I've only played I've only played a small handful. Uh, in person, I think I played one or maybe two. Um, but that's a game where like the actual rules about what you're allowed to do. I mean, you know, it's it's not go fish, but it's not super complex on the scale of games either. Um, but the game you're playing is not on the level of the actions you're taking. Like you're taking actions. I am laying track. I am making stations. I am buying, you know, or or, or selling this stock. Um, 
And but the game is the in, is like it lives in the intersection between these things. So like I played a couple of practice games using a computer mod, like just in preparation for the first time I played. And like halfway through that game, I started to be able to see, okay, great. There's the matrix. Like there's the game we're actually playing. All that the rules define are the knobs and buttons you're allowed to press. They don't tell you anything about the dynamics of what happens when you do all those things. And I think when you combine simple subsystems that create emergent complexity, you get more and more of that, uh, which can be, uh, for some players, a wild benefit. And for other players, may not be what they're looking for. Um, so uh, in that sense, like it can be easier in some ways, but it can also be harder in others. How often do you cut mechanics from games or um, different ideas from games? Constantly is not quite correct, but it is. it points in the right direction of correct. Um, my personal style is often if I have a number of ideas which fit due to theme, then I'll try them all and see which work with mechanics and dynamics and then cut the ones that don't. Or if I have some ideas which work in mechanics and dynamics, I'll try many of them and then cut the ones which don't work with theme uh, or experience. Like there, there's a, uh, I tend to do um, add and then prune tends to be my style. Like I'll start with a whole, a huge hot mess and it'll be like, well, that's not really adding anything. Chob. Do we really need that? Chob. Do some more pruning, but then I'll add more stuff in, like another season's growth. Be like, okay, how about these? No, okay, that doesn't work. Chob. So actually, trees are a good way to think of it. Um, you know, like you have a season's growth and then you prune back. Season's growth, prune back. Season's growth, prune back. Um, and uh, so, yes, cutting happens all the time. The, there are... There are so many things cut from Spirit Island that I literally forget about them. Like people will interview me and talk about them or I'll do designer diaries. I look back at the designer diary and I'm like, all right, there's that subsystem which existed for years, which just no longer happens. There used to be an entire like different piece of the invader deck, which happened after stage three and had special rules, but it's not there anymore. And I just totally forgot about it. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I love the way that you think about it. Is it's something that I I find a lot of similarities to uh, as well. I, now I have some questions that are from other designers and other fans of uh, Spirit Island uh, to ask you. Uh, one of awesome. which is uh, first of all, what are your plans for new games? Is there anything um, new that you already have planned uh, coming out? Outside of Four Science and uh, further Spirit Island expansions, I do not have anything signed right now. I don't have any games in what I would consider a pitch-worthy state. Like, there's nothing. Uh, there was actually a publisher that reached out to me recently and said, hey, do you have anything sitting on the shelf if you're looking to pitch? You know, if so, talk to us. And I, I had to reply back and say, I wish I did, but no. Um, when I had kids, I focused on For Science and Spirit Island and basically dropped all of my other design, which means that I got this gap in my pipeline where I had like Spirit Island and For Science, which are ready, and then nothing in mid-stage. So there was a period uh, after Spirit Island went to the printer and before it arrived when I had nothing on my plate because uh, For Science was being tested but was in a semi-stable state. So I got a bunch of design in then, but that kind of, you know, some of those didn't go anywhere. Others got to sort of uh, a little ways along. And I've had other periods since then that I've managed to do some testing. So I have half a dozen designs, which, you know, in each case, if I could move them further along, spend a couple of months, you know, focusing on them, then I feel like they'd be ready to pitch. Um, But 
none of them are are there. I was uh, in the beginning of this year, I'd gotten to the point where it's like, okay, each month I'm going to try and get one of these into a testable or maybe pitchable state. Um, but then the pandemic happened, and then for science went to Kickstarter or uh, uh, crowdfunding and needed support. And now I'm uh, looking at next Spirit Island expansions. So, you know, I sort of lost my window there, sadly. Yeah. And could you tell me, this is something I missed, but I'm, I'm happy that I remembered it, is um, how different is it working on an expansion in, in comparison to making a whole new game? It is very different uh, for two reasons. One is that you're playing inside of an existing rule structure, and that defines a bunch of constraints, which you need to work within. And that makes certain things a lot easier by making some things impossible. Like you just can't change certain things. You have to work inside the ecosystem. And like it's often said, constraints are, are one of the seeds of creativity. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to pin down things that won't change before you can start playing around those. And, and so developing content for Spirit Island has been easier. I'm not going to say easy. It's still not easy, but it's much easier than the initial process of design because I know some things which just aren't going to change. And also because I've had more practice. Uh, and because there's more playtesters who have gotten ever more awesome as time goes on. Uh, so, you know, that's all fantastic. Um, which is one of the reasons why Jagged Earth Spirits are, you know, I feel that they were able to stretch in ways which I've had tried in the base game would not have worked out well because I didn't know things as well. Uh, and because of the stability which working as an expansion affords. The other big change is knowing from the get-go, like before I set pen to paper, whatever I make is almost certainly going to be published. And that's a little intimidating. Like when, when, when I make the, when I, when I make a game for the first time, there's the like, okay, I'm going to make this and I can feel free to do whatever wild and crazy stuff I want because if it ends up being bad, I am confident that either I will catch it in design, my playtesters will catch it with playtesting, uh, or if worse comes to worse, that I'll pitch it to a publisher and they'll go, meh, no, not so great. Um, but when you have a large entrenched player base who loves a game, they're going to be willing to, like, you know, to take a chance. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I liked the game, so I'm going to buy the expansion. So there's this like thought of, well, if I screw this up and it doesn't get caught, you know, because playtesters may be enthusiastic, like there is the whole enthusiasm problem. Like people are enthusiastic about it. Is that going to result in me releasing something which isn't as good? Um, you know, it's the kind of thing you see, like you know, in, in sort of like you know, book publishing. Like you know, someone becomes a uh, a mega hit author, and then you start wondering, like, wait, is their editor like still editing their work? You know, you can end up with that quality drop off, and I don't want that to happen to me. So it's like, okay, all right, but at the same time, I still want to stretch and try some of the things which are, you know kind of out there because now I feel that both my skill, the playtester base, and the solid substructure, uh, or increasingly solid substructure, will support things like, you know, Finder of Path Unseen, you know, wild and crazy presence tracks, extremely hyper-focused spirit, which can do, I mean, there's some of that with Bringer of Dreams and Nightmares, which can't do, which can't do damage at all, but, you know, Finder of Paths Unseen, like, you know, incredible hyper-focus on just moving things around and, like, can I make that work? 
And so there's a tension between wanting to be creative and explore new things and not wanting to faceplant. Uh, what are some games yep, that you play? Yep. Games that I play. Um, what I'm playing now is heavily limited by the pandemic. I do some remote gaming, uh, and that tends to be sort of like, you know, what is out there and available on, you know, Board Game Arena or uh, Tabletop Simulator or whatnot. Um, I do play Spirit Island semi-regularly with friends. There's a, a great scripted mod for that. And uh, I'm hoping that the digital implementation will also uh, uh, do multiplayer someday because, oh my, I'm so happy with that, what Handelabra has done with the digital implementation. It is super fantastic, but it is currently hot seat or Steam remote play only. Um, I'm playing a lot with my kids. Uh, with them, I tend to be playing stuff uh, 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 which is sort of appropriate for, you know, they're eight and five. So I'm playing like King Domino, uh, playing Blockus. Just started playing uh, uh, Abandon All Artichokes by Larkins, which uh, we're really enjoying, which is a, a deck wrecker. Um, Santorini uh, is another one. And uh, Reiner Knizia's, um Loco, uh, which has been re-implemented countless times, just like Wildlife Safari and other things. Mm, yeah. So uh, online, it's been mostly like quick games of like Innovation Race for the Galaxy. I think we had a Potion Explosion recently. I've been doing some of those asynchronously, uh, just to sort of like you know quick things end of the day, take a turn or two in a game. Um, but I really miss face-to-face -face board gaming. Yeah, sort of a I. lot. <laughs> I think everyone at the uh, moment is uh, missing it. Oh, and also uh, for a while, I was uh, playing uh, the King's Dilemma. Uh, some friends and I started a campaign of it. It's a, it's a legacy game. Yeah, yeah. I, like, I, just before the pandemic. I actually can't wait to try it out. Uh, I've heard such good things about it. It is really neat. Uh, and it is, I think it's the first, what I'm going to call independent legacy game, like, you know, not designed by Rob Davio. Uh, I've enjoyed lots of Rob Davio's legacy games, but, you know, you want to see stuff from other designers too. Uh, and because, and because of that, has, I think, something of a different feel to it. Um, which is neat. I love the cross-cutting incentives for like, well, I, I want to vote this way for like this tactical reason and this, this way for this other tactical reason, but I want to vote this other way for the strategic reason. And this other person, like maybe if I do them a favor, they'll help me later on. Like, you know, the best votes were ones where uh, I had like five different reasons to vote or abstain in other in, in different directions and I had to weigh all of those and be like what course do i want to sail through these waters like what are, what do i really care about here um uh, and one of the things being like the light role playing and real life sensibilities like you're, you're being asked to choose between horrible things and you have to choose like am I going to view this on a strictly game mechanical level or are we going to inject light role-playing or heavy role-playing? If only light role-playing, am I going to allow my real-life sensibilities to inform my in-game decisions? If not, how am I going to feel about that? Like it explores really interesting territory, which I really liked. Um, but we've been, we just played two games of it before the pandemic started and um, uh, continued on with a, a tabletop simulator mod, which got pulled down because uh, either, I think the publisher was not okay with it being out there. Mm -hmm. um, we felt, you know, we'd already started the TTS mod at that point and owned the physical game. So we felt like, like sort of ethically that we were okay to do. Uh, and 
and keep going off. There's anybody out there who has is playing the TTS mod but has not bought the physical game. I would encourage you to support the publisher um, and the designer for and the designers for that. You know, similarly, if there's anybody out there playing Spirit Island regularly on Tabletop Simulator, like please by all means do that. But you know, I'd encourage you to also support the 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 digital and physical instantiations of the game at some point if you enjoy it that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, um, for sure. And my sort of final uh, question to you would be: What would be your advice to um, game designers and people who want to begin designing games? I tried to answer this as a single question for um, who's uh, Marvin on the Nerd Lab asked me this question. I just couldn't break, couldn't keep it at one. I can't remember all the answers I dogpiled onto him, but uh, the. The two big ones, I guess, would be a like there's no there's no gatekeeping. Like you can make it, you can design a game. You are a game designer. Like once you've designed a game, that's it. Um, if your aspiration is to become like a professional game designer, that's one thing. But like I want to be a game designer, you can do it, and you can do it in an afternoon. Just start, start working on it, and you will be there. And then once you've started, you can improve over time. Which brings me to the other major piece of advice, which is iterate. Like, try something, see what works, see what doesn't, change it. Try try it some more, change it some more. The more you do that, the more you will learn about your own game. The more you do that across many games, the more you will learn about designing your own games. And I've seen, I can't remember who said it and whether it was in the context of video games or board games, but like the time when you know the most about your own design, like at any given time, you are continuously learning about it. So if you have a game which is going to be published, Maybe, was it Cole Worley? Was it Rob Davio? I can't even remember. I apologize to whoever originally said this. But, like, in the two weeks before, your fi- before you lock down your files for printing, right then you know more about your game than at any other point in time. And the more you have iterated, the more you will have learned about it. So keep working on it. Keep changing things. Don't get stuck on one either on, on one thing in a given design and don't get stuck on, don't hyper-focus on one design and never design a second thing. Your, like your, your other designs, your side designs will teach you things about your main project. So go try other things, even if you have a single like, you know, uh, uh, sort of project of your heart, which is the thing which you really want to get out there. What you learn with other things, you can bring back to your main project. So, uh, and structure your game design around avoiding things which get in the way of iterating. Uh, do not carefully custom craft pieces of artwork for every single card in your first iteration because you'll just need to throw half of them out when your cards change or when you realize that actually it's not a card game after all it's a dice game um so don't do things which will get in the way of your own development and design how much of a part do you have in the art and style of the game once you've signed it with a publisher i'm sure it differs from game to to game yeah it it differs a lot and it can change actually uh the the you know, like with greater than games, I ended up heavily involved in the design, the initial like design for the spirits in the core game and how they looked, but then was almost a hundred percent uninvolved in the artwork from then on in. Like the initial concept art, yes, but then the actual panel and power card art was mostly just not me at all. Mm-hmm. I have since become more involved for a variety of reasons. Um so I'm now more involved there. For for science, um, I was sort of almost the inverse of that. Like I wasn't involved in concept sketching at all, um, but then I was more involved in feedback on the initial art than I was in Spirit Island. Um, 
there's some places where I can't go into details on these, uh, you know, like in, in Spirit Island or such, because you know the publisher would rather not that I, rather than I not talk about details of internal process. Um, but I can talk in these broad strokes about this. Um, that it varies by publisher where and how much I'm involved has varied by publisher. Um, it is common in the board game world for the designer to have little say or or to often what's most common is the designer has no formal say and uh is and uh any review which they get is a courtesy by the publisher um but it's also common for like designers to in theory you know owe minimal ongoing development work to publishers like you know uh, th there's usually a reasonable assistance clause in most contracts but it is also common for designers to be far more involved than is contractually obligated uh in a published work uh so there's sort of a like there's the letter of what's in a published agreement and then there's sort of like what most often happens the 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 written agreement the legal agreement is what you can count on as a designer and you know be aware of that um but just be aware that there are often things which you know can happen they're just not guaranteed to happen like input on art or like the designer being involved after a certain point in time mm -hmm. all right well the Thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to me. It was uh, really, really great. <laughs> yeah, happy to. I, I, I enjoyed chatting with you. I'm sorry that the uh, connection got a little spotty at times.